Chapter 5 Crystal Shrine Grotto Belle continued to wear the title of Grieving Widow Baron as a badge of honor, even after three more subsequent marriages. She went so far as to have her name preemptively engraved on her ex-husband's tombstone. Hunter's former colleagues were appalled, but since she paid for the headstone, there was nothing they could do. During all of this, Hunter III had no time to grieve himself. He was expected to spend all of his free time catering to his poor widowed mother, like a dutiful son. Of course, that didn't mean she was going to curtail any of her social life. As she reminded him again and again, they were really all alone now, and she was the only one that really loved him. Increasingly, as he got older, Hunter responded to her tactics by heading off to see his co-friends and getting high. They had moved yet again, so he didn't live as close to his friends as he did before, but by the age of 12, Hunter was joyriding around Memphis at every opportunity, often with Jody Feldman. In what initially appeared to be a strange dichotomy, he also became increasingly interested in the ritualization of the more observant forms of Judaism. He didn't really believe any of the tenets of the faith, but it felt good to follow the routine. It was the same every time. It was the same every time. It remained the same every time. That brought him comfort that otherwise eluded him. Both the risk-taking behaviors and the trappings of religion allow him to escape the reality that the only person who really seemed to love him unconditionally, the only stable force in his life, was just suddenly gone. But he was also angry because his dad had left him behind even before he died. After all of these years of yelling, screaming, and endless melodrama, Hunter was emotionally stunted. That's not to say he wasn't intelligent. Hunter was becoming a very clever and cunning boy. It meant that he didn't know how to respond to his feelings in a normal way. He didn't know how to empathize with other people. He didn't understand that other people could hurt the way he hurt, or more that he just didn't care. He watched it all swirl around him, but he just didn't care. He only knew how he felt. He felt cold on the inside much of the time when he was watching other people. He had seen his mother play that game too many times. He'd watch her cry on command to get what she wanted ever since he was a child. So... He became unmoved by tears. He learned that tears were just a tool to control other people. Despite all of this, in the strange ways of the psyche, Belle was the one that could pull his strings. Other people's tears left him entirely unaffected unless he caused them. When he made someone cry, he felt powerful. He felt important and he was happy. 
or whatever past is happy in his private little world. Other people's pain was something abstract. It was like watching a time-lapse movie, like the films of the fruit developing, then ripening, and then finally rotting on the vine. He could witness it, he could see it, but he remained entirely untouched by it. He soon realized the best part of it was that other people didn't realize it. As long as he mouthed the right words at the right time, people didn't even know that he was completely apathetic inside. It was the same with animals, except that animals might be a lot smarter than most people, he thought. Animals had an instinct to detect danger. People didn't. He had a smug smile on his face while he thought about it. Hunter had developed a game, actually, to make animals trust him. He started with the pet rabbit, but quickly realized it wasn't a challenge. Rabbits were too stupid not to trust everyone. Same thing with those stupid German shepherds his mother insisted on having. But cats were a challenge. They were much smarter, more evolved animals. They could quickly sense danger and didn't trust people easily. Once he had mastered his private little game in his own home, he made a game about playing it openly in front of people and seeing how ignorant they remained. It always astounded him how completely stupid the people around him were. Stupid, vapid cows, he thought but he had to pick his subjects carefully, otherwise it wasn't even a challenge. He started paying attention to the shy Nancy Weinstone. He likened her to a dumb animal, but she was too shy to trust him at first, which made it more exciting. After slowly gaining her trust, he could do almost anything. He didn't think she was even smart enough to think that he might be spending time with her for any reason other than friendship. He couldn't believe someone could be so oblivious. She wasn't even interesting. He decided to test this theory with her cat, Trixie. Trixie was a black and white two-year-old cat that Nancy adored. He went out of his way to come by Nancy's house and charm her parents with his old-fashioned manner and strict religion observance. He also went by to slowly charm the cat, which had a secondary effect of endearing him to Nancy. He brought Trixie little treats and toys. He brought her catnip-laced stuffed mice and tuna-laced snacks. After a while, Trixie would see him arrive and would come running over to see what treats he had. Every day, he'd scratch her ears and pet her head. When Nancy wasn't looking, he also slowly, ever so slowly, tightened Trixie's collar a tiny quarter centimeter on each visit. It was gradual enough that the cat didn't fight. But then one day, Hunter caught Nancy flirting with Bradley Faulkner. Shortly after, she gave Hunter the, we should just be friends, speech after rehearsing it in the mirror. She didn't like the way Hunter would touch her and try to grope her, even after she told him not to. She didn't like the way he tried to pressure her into kissing him and doing things she didn't feel comfortable with. 
She hated the way he somehow made her feel guilty for telling him not to try to put his hands up her skirt. She felt relieved when Hunter stayed calm and said, sure thing. After her little speech, he started dating Jody Feldman shortly after, but he came by periodically to say hello and to bring Trixie treats. About a month after the speech and a few hours after Hunter had stopped by, her beloved cat abruptly had a seizure. Trixie died shortly after arriving at the veterinary clinic. Nancy was completely devastated and her parents were perplexed. The veterinarian pulled Nancy's parents out of earsight, away from where Nancy continued to cry and slowly stroked the cat's soft little body. You should be more careful with your household chemicals. I'm really sorry to tell you this, but I'm fairly certain that Nancy's cat died from poisoning. Do you have any rat bait set out in the garage? Have you done any automotive work lately? Did you recently change the radiator or top off the antifreeze? The vet asked. Nancy's mother's face went white at the same moment that Nancy's father's face darkened with rage. That little psycho, he yelled before his wife hushed him. You can't prove it, Nancy's mom, Rebecca, said. But we both know it, her husband answered. Rebecca just nodded, her face tight and appearing pinched. They decided then and there, after speaking with the veterinarian and apprising him of their suspicions, to keep the truth from Nancy. It will only hurt her. In the meantime, they would just have to keep that monster away from their baby. From that day forward, Hunter wasn't welcome at the Weinstone home. They also called Bill to talk to her about Hunter, but as soon as she answered the phone, she was on the offensive. I know all about you. Hunter told me what kind of cruel, awful people you are. You are just lucky I don't make some calls. You won't get away with bullying my child. Bell yelled into the phone before abruptly hanging up. It was an empty threat as the Weinstones were one of the wealthiest families in the entire Mid-South, not to mention Memphis. They had made their fortune in the cotton industry and Bruce Weinstone had worked for two different presidents until Reagan came along. But just to be sure, the Weinstones decided to send Nancy away to an exclusive East Coast boarding school for the next few years. She didn't want to leave her friends, particularly Rachel Mathis, but Bruce Weinstone could be stern when he needed to be. And for the safety of his youngest daughter, he would brook no arguments. Hunter learned from this, and he did a better job the next time. As he was doing all this growing up, unsupervised, he also learned that he could make people like him by telling stories and doing favors for them. The more outrageous the story, the better. The key was, you had to bury a nugget of absolute truth in the most outlandish tales. Then, when someone tried to fact check you, they were quickly shut down. If they did manage to find the falsehood in your tall tales, you never back down from your story 
You doubled down instead. Then you went on the attack. You challenged their intellect or accused them of attempting to maliciously malign you. But you needed to have an audience. They usually ended up apologizing. If they didn't, it just made the requisite audience feel sorry for you, and that never hurt. You could get a long way on other people's sympathy. Hunter also liked to be seen as a fixie guy. He liked to make people beholden to him. Need five dollars? Why, this is the last money in his pocket, but sure, take it. Need drugs? Let him make a few calls. Trying to stay sober? Well, you better not come around then because that was just one thing he wouldn't tolerate. But looking for concert tickets? Looking for a party? He began hunting the local music studios in his quest for fame and recognition. At Royal Records, he found a niche. The owner, Willie Mitchell, didn't mind having a skinny white kid around to run errands. In exchange, Hunter was able to rub elbows with some of the biggest players in the blues and soul genres of the time. He ran errands, he soothed egos, and he fed addictions. It paved his way in the music industry as he became a familiar face in the studio, outside the club, and on the street. In return, he was able to offer more favors to the kids his age. Along the way, he learned about music. He didn't have any musical talent of his own, but he developed an ear to hear it. As he ended his teens, Hunter became more and more sophisticated at these games and his circle of friends and acquaintances continued to expand. It didn't ease the empty spot in his soul though. He could believingly go through the motions, but he couldn't really care about anyone. He just didn't see other people that way. People were here to either elevate his social status, expand his opportunities, bolster his ego, or alleviate his boredom. He figured out pretty early on that people would either see through his shenanigans immediately or they never would. The gullible types, the ones who took him at his word, they would make excuses for him if his mask began to slip. He was particularly good at this with women. He could charm them and then evoke their sympathies. He had a dead dad, after all. He managed to sleep his way through a large part of his childhood friendship circle that way. Now, as for the people that he didn't charm, well, those people were a threat and they needed to be neutralized. When he was young, he was still pretty clumsy in his attempts to publicly humiliate and demean his newly declared enemies. He would force a conversation on his terms in an attempt to show his superior intellect. Often, he just verbally vomited random facts on that person and ignored all rebuttals until the other person dissolved into utter frustration. He could literally drive the opposing person almost to the point of blows with his incessant harangues. Hunter, stop talking, was the usual refrain of his friends. However, the older he got, 
the more this talking became incessant, endless verbal vomit that he was incapable of holding back. It became an overwhelming pathology that defined him utterly. It was the cadence to this endless pattern that gave doctors insight to his thinking. There was no change in cadence, tone of voice, or delivery related to the content. All of it seemed prepackaged and rehearsed. Even the supposed off-the-cuff remarks were delivered in the same fashion. His delivery didn't change whether he was reciting an off-color joke, one of his fantastic tales, or offering words of deep sympathy. Here now in his early 20s was the moment he came the closest to accomplishing his dreams and heading up the avenue to success. The more Belle pulled him closer, the more he resented her. It wasn't the usual growing pains of young adulthood. He didn't have any of those because he hadn't made any moves towards independence. He stayed content in his mother's house as she continued to support him after high school through an extended period of college and beyond. This was totally different. His mother had a way of lashing out and wounding him that was greatly disproportionate to the crime. At the same time, he felt beholden to her because he knew, especially now that his father was gone, that she was the only one who loved him. Without her, he would have nothing. This was brought home one evening in his early 20s. He had been out with some friends, some of the more wild set, Michelle Gates, Jody Lewis, Rebecca Rubin, and Daryl Emerson. Jody was the only one that wasn't Jewish in this little circle, and she was often the one encouraging the rest at their wildest. But on this occasion, it was the heiress, Rebecca Rubin. Her parents owned a very well-known jewelry store. She and Daryl had arrived in a new convertible with a trunk full of beer and a pocket full of weed. The rest of them had piled into the car and headed out for the privacy of Shelby Farms. After getting high and drunk, the group started to partner off. The fact that there were an odd number just meant that Hunter took on both Michelle and Rebecca, while Daryl and Jody wandered off into the trees for half an hour. When Hunter returned to his house late that night, with grass stains on his clothes, beer and cigarettes on his breath, and glazed red eyes, Belle was waiting. She was in her nightgown, sitting in a straight-backed chair, when Hunter tried to quickly sneak into the dark house. He thought he'd made it when her voice stopped him cold. Blood would tell, you know, she said with great theatricality. Belle wasn't always very original, but she knew how to get your attention. Blood would always tell. I tried to raise you not to be trash, but I failed. You will always be trash, just like your mama and her people are trash. Hunter was bewildered by this and attempted to interrupt, but mama, she ruthlessly cut him off. Do you know we bought you? It's obvious now that Hunter overpaid, but then he was always stupid like that. We paid a hundred dollars for you, 
but it's so easy to see that you aren't worth it. You are just as dirty and disgusting as that whore we got you from. Straight out the trailer. Yes, you are. I sure as hell didn't birth such a disgusting animal like you. That was how Hunter found out he was adopted. The rest of Memphis had long since forgotten. But in the wee hours, in a dark living room, as his mom, no wait, as Belle dripped venom, Hunter learned the truth of his birth. That venom poisoned everything it touched. You know what the best part of it is? Belle said, her voice laced with bitterness. You aren't even Jewish. Not one drop. Looking at the trap we got you from, you could be a lot of things. But Jewish, you ain't, she said sarcastically. She abhorred bad grammar, so he knew this was just another dig at him. You are just a big old fraud, and everyone knows it, even God. She said, raising her voice as she stood up from the chair to slap him across the face. He barely felt her hand. He was already lashed by her words. He just turned away from her and walked up the stairs. Publicly, he remained the dutiful son. Everyone knew that Hunter was just so devoted to his poor widowed mama, and wasn't that just lovely? As with many people with violent tempers, once her ire cooled, Belle had forgotten all that she had said. She certainly never said anything to try and rectify things with Hunter, but he didn't seem to need it. It was like she never said anything. Here he was, so dutiful and devoted. He escorted her to her ladies' events, served as her date for a real estate awards dinner, offered to chariot her around. He always made her so proud at these events. Everyone was bragging about their children, but he was the only one who came around so people could see how devoted he was. Who cares about the honor roll and GPAs when her son was here and on her arm? After switching school almost yearly in high school, he graduated in 1986. As most of his friends headed off to various points, east, west, north, and south, to a myriad of colleges and universities, Hunter stayed to start a languorous six-year stint at Memphis State University. He continued to live at home while he ran around town on various odd projects. He didn't actually attend classes very often. The university was more of a social meeting area for him. He then spent the year in Israel to pursue an ultra-Orthodox lifestyle, or at least that is what he told Bill. As usual, he went through the motions, the routine. He donned the phylacteries, the prayer shawl, and he mapped the prayers. At the same time, he continued to indulge his love of nightlife and cocaine. He slowly meandered back to Memphis as the money ran out. Hunter II and Bill were both more secular Jews. They had attended the Reformed Synagogue if and when it suited them, mostly for major holidays, weddings, and bar mitzvahs. In the spectrum of Jewish beliefs, Reform is the closest thing to religion, light. This does not mean that the beliefs are any less sincere or ardent. 
Unlike many religions, Judaism is one that promotes the asking of questions as part of the serious study of the faith. Students are expected to question all tenets of belief and to seek out the answers. In fact, many of the sacred texts are that of previous scholars and their questions. However, the Great Reformation of the 1880s was a time when many of the learned scholars of the Jewish religion decided to decode and modernize many of the religious practices that date back to almost 6,000 years. They took stock of the situation facing their congregants and shed many of the trappings that immediately and definitively marked their followers as other within their larger societies, communities, and cities. Gone were the forelocks and the distinct matter of dress that made Jews easy targets in the frequent pogroms that sweep across Russia and most of Europe. They sought to integrate their flock into the rest of the society while retaining the beliefs they consider essential to the worship of their God. In the overview of the various divisions of Judaism, different branches are measured by how closely or how far they stray from the original beliefs. Reform is the farthest branch of the religion. Conservative Judaism is closer to the original practices, but with some adaptations to modern living, whereas Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, including Hasidism and other small sects, do all that they can to continue to practice and live the way their ancestors did thousands of years ago. The closer you get to the original practices, the more closed the society gets. Hebrew becomes the language of daily interactions, marriages are arranged, and religion isn't just a part of your daily life, it consumes it. Since he was a small child attending Jewish day camp and attending a Jewish school, Hunter had been moving into more conservative circles. By the time he was in middle school and after the death of his father, he had convinced his mother to move to a more conservative synagogue. Baron Hiddich. As a place for Jewish life, Memphis offers a surprising array of options as well as a large supportive community across the spectrum of practices. There are several conservative synagogues within the city. However, Baron Hiddish was the synagogue best known for its wealth and the wealth and celebrity of its congregants. For someone like Hunter who wore his religion like a cape or a badge of inclusion, Baron Hirich was the right place to be. He might not have really been Jewish, as it turns out, but that was between him and Bell. The fact that he could have remedied this using well-established protocols wasn't important to him. Maintaining the illusion was. For Hunter... Religion had nothing to do with the belief in God or a set of practices designed to guide moral behavior. For him, it was similar to a person with obsessive compulsive disorder. The need to knock exactly three times before entering a building doesn't bring a sense of enlightenment, but it does alleviate anxiety. It was the same for Hunter. He didn't have sincere beliefs in the Ten Commandments, 
but he had a deep, deep need to be included in the club. Even when it came to religion, if the primary movers and shakers in the 1970s and 1980s Memphis had been evangelicals, Hunter would have been an evangelical. Somewhere deep inside him, in the place where the rest of us keep our hopes and dreams, he had a deep empty pit of insecurity. He knew he didn't really belong long before he actually found out. But that great hole of insecurity threatened to swallow him. This insecurity, in turn, did to him what it did to so many people. It made him cruel and belittling to others. He went back to gophering for the greats at the studio. He'd been doing it for so long that they had finally given up on the idea that the skinny white kid that talked too much was going to go away on his own. If that was the case, he could do a little more around the studio to earn his place, Papa Mitchell decided. Anyone that persistent deserved a chance, Papa Mitchell reasoned, even if the kid got under his skin. They began assigning him additional small duties, the things that the rest of the people at the studio didn't want to do. With that, Hunter III became more tolerated. They may not have liked the obnoxious motor mouth, but as long as he did his job, they could avoid the more unpleasant tasks around the studio. It seemed well worth it to many of the people there. In the meantime, at the same time that he was slowly getting more responsibilities at Royal, he explained to Belle that he wanted to move to Israel permanently. It would aid his spirituality, he explained. Belle started to panic. She was in her mid-sixties by then, and while she retained her Grace Kelly-like icy beauty, she didn't really want to be alone. Shortly after, Belle married her fourth husband, Rabbi Pincus Aloof. While she married the rabbi in an attempt to keep Hunter closer to home, it was doomed to fail. In the first place, Despite the fact that he was an Orthodox rabbi from Jerusalem, he and Hunter could only butt heads. Belle couldn't bring herself to welcome Pinterest's six children or his many grandchildren to her Memphis life either. But Pinchas had no intention of staying in one place. He had made a career out of controversy and moved from congregation to congregation. He had previously been the rabbi of a congregation in Indiana. After a three-year term, he left. Over the following years, after moving to New Jersey, Florida, and a myriad of other places, the synagogue in Indiana continued to struggle to find another rabbi. Rabbi Aloof decided to return to Indiana with Bell at his side. However, even a healthy distance from her now-grown son couldn't save their marriage. While Belle had married to keep her son close, she awoke one day to find that Pincus had left her. It was a brutal humiliation for the eternally well-preserved Belle. While she managed to look young, the years were still passing. After 10 months in Indiana, Belle was alone again. The rabbi had run off to Kansas to raise cattle. 
Belle returned to Memphis and the home she still shared with her now adult son. It was a new custom-built home in the bedroom community of Cordova, and it was built for just the two of them. But when Hunter started dating Jody Feldman, Belle saw an opportunity. She invited Jody for a ladies' lunch. During lunch, she promised Jody that if she married Hunter, she'd buy them a house. While Jody liked Belle, she was completely freaked out by the offer. She made sure not to find herself alone with Belle again for the rest of the time she was dating Hunter. Hunter still lounged around the Memphis State campus, supposedly to attend law school and follow in the footsteps of his father, but he mainly just hung out at the Jewish Student Union to play pool or pick up women. The younger, the better. That's where I met him in the fall of 1992 as a naive 18-year-old from California. This episode was narrated by Zipporah Gray of RMP Studios in Memphis, Tennessee.